Hello and welcome to the British Chambers podcast channel. We're delighted to bring you a second season of in-depth discussions and conversations with our members and high-profile speakers, ranging from topics like trade, fintech, arts, sports, and more within Singapore, ASEAN, and the UK. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome to our listeners. My name is David Kelly. I'm the Executive Director here at the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. 2021 has been another year that we won't forget, but there is still good reason to celebrate great business success. For the second year running, the pandemic has forced us to transform our our annual awards ceremony into a live and interactive online event. And there was no doubt that we would continue to uncover stories of success and inspiration from our network, and we were not disappointed. As the longest running awards initiative by any international chamber here in Singapore, join me as I talk to some of our winners and the initiatives that saw them as winners this year. And I'm really delighted today to be welcomed by both Andrew Johnston, the General Manager and Director of Agronomy at Sentosa Golf Club, the winner of our Sustainability Champion of the Year category, and Nicola Hewitt, the Climate and Energy Attaché at the British High Commission in Singapore, the winner of the Individual Contribution of the Year category. So let's get into it. And sustainability is the main topic of conversation today. And it couldn't be more timely given that COP26 was held in Glasgow over the last couple of weeks. So first of all, a huge welcome to you both. Andrew, if I may start with you, congratulations on being announced as the winner of the Sustainability Champion of the Year Award at Sentosa Golf Club. It's fantastic to have you with us. Let's just start with a bit of an overview of Sentosa Golf Club and why you entered the business board, if that's okay. Yeah, well, well, thank you very much. And, and you know, we're still pinching ourselves that we were actually the successful, the successful winners. I mean, when you look at all the different businesses that were involved in in their submissions, for the life of me, I never thought that that we would end up in the position that we ended up in. And I'm just excited to have that uh, to have that opportunity to to lead there. I mean, when you look at golf, golf has had you know the vision of being such an elitist vehicle and wasteful. And it's not true. You know, we're probably one of the best stewards of the land and uh, golf has become very different in in the modern age. Um, we're so careful with the products that we use. We're so careful with the energy we have. And, and we sit on a we sit on a footprint in these big urban concrete jungles and they need spaces like us. We're the cooling center for these big concrete centers, and and we're the sanctuary for wildlife. And and there's so many programs that we have in place that allows golf to be so much more than just a game. Oh, fabulous. In 2020, and just picking up on that theme, Sentosa Golf Club became the first golf club in the world, I think, to sign up to the UN Sports for Climate Action Initiative. And in 2021, you also pledged to become the first carbon neutral golf venue in, in the world by 2022. So Clearly, you're taking this really, really seriously, which is fantastic to hear. Can you share with our listeners why sustainability is so high on your agenda? And, you know, as such an iconic brand here in Singapore, why you feel it's really important to set those goals? Well, there's there's multiple pillars that that I think fall in place when you ask a question like that. Um, one is we see ourselves as a as a vehicle for all of golf. That if we if we show the world that we can make a difference, uh, we feel like golf could be one of the most significant things that helps with climate change beyond the game of golf. And, and joining the UN and being the first club to join the UN is is quite an honor. But when you look at the when you look at the signatories that are involved in the work groups that we have from time to time, you have 
you have like the New York Yankees, you have uh, the All England Club where you know Wimbledon is played, and 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 we have these work groups where we sit around and we share ideas and we and we continue to drive towards what is the the new agenda with uh, the UN that we've all just signed up to, and that's the race to zero, and and so that takes me to the last part of your question. We've been measuring our carbon footprint now for a couple of years, and so we know what that number is, and and we know we want to continue to improve it, and we have some we have some really brilliant ideas that I think are going to evolve to be pretty special. But what we're doing today to get to ourselves to carbon zero is, is we're we're charging every golfer one extra dollar, so every golfer has has the ability to play a carbon free round of golf. At the end of the year, we'll take those dollars. And then we'll, we'll use them towards offsets that help the community, that help Singapore. But our end goal is, is to truly get to become a, a carbon zero facility, if not a carbon plus, where we're, where we're in reverse. And we've, we've got some, some programs in place. And since we've been measuring our carbon footprint, we're seeing improvements and we continue to, to keep pushing forward in that direction. Fantastic. Do you work with other organisations in Singapore, like the National Parks Board, to sort of share best practice and see how you can keep driving the agenda? Well, uh, SDC, so Sentosa Development Corporation, certainly does. And and the island of Sentosa has also made the pledge that by 2030, the island of Sentosa will be carbon neutral. And, and in the next five years, the island will no longer have anything but electric vehicles on it that, for transportation. And, and so our, our, our parents, which is Sentosa Development Corporation, certainly work with all the other organizations. As far as the golf club goes, we've been working with other organizations through a larger scale that really dial in just towards golf like Golf in the Environment, which is one of the organizations that's based out of the UK that certifies golf courses for these kinds of things. I believe that in 2018, you launched a a Keep It Green campaign. And I think that sort of involves lots of different sort of sort of factors. Can you just share a little bit more with our listeners about about that as an initiative? Yeah, so so Keep It Green was kind of our, our breaking out moment that we that we used for a, I guess I can call it a media campaign to just break the awareness that we're making a difference. We had we'd been working on, on these topics for almost a decade. I mean, and each year we were we were doing things not because at that time it was about climate change. It was just the right thing to do. And and being good stewards of the land and, and making sure we were more energy efficient. And and before we realized it, when 218 came around, we kind of looked at the long list and said, well, we're really making a difference. And so we, we kind of called it the Keep It Green campaign. And we launched it during one of our big professional events, the Singapore Open. And, and mm. it became embraced by, by a bunch of different organizations, including the RNA, who, who has their own uh, campaign called the 2030. But, but they endorsed ours. And, and the idea behind it was, was just to kind of build a, an awareness within golf that, hey, there are things that we can do. We have a playbook. Here's the playbook. Take a look at it. And if you can, if you can tick off a few of these things and, and make improvements at your facilities, great. And the, the larger we could share that, the, the more bigger difference we could make within the golfing community. Did that involve into the sort of the Game On campaign that you launched in 2020 around the Singapore yeah. Open? How, how does that differ? Or when we joined the UN and became the the first in golf to sign with the as a signatory of the UN's Climate mm. Change for Action, we also did a documentary that we called Game On, 
And I do a lot of speaking engagements. I get, well, I haven't in the last couple of years due to the environment we live in, but, uh, but I get asked often to go around the world and do speaking engagements. And one of the topics everybody wants to hear is about climate change. And, and in, my big, in my big presentations, I often say, if we don't do this, it could be game over. And if, you'd, if we don't remove plastics, it could be game over. If we don't control energy, it could be game And then at the end of my presentation, I always say, uh, you know, there's 39,000 golf courses in the world. And if we all do our part to protect the endangered and, and work towards climate change, it's not game over, it's game on. And then the game on became part of our, our documentary. Uh, so that's where the game on phrase came from. Oh, fantastic. So how, how does that networking across other golf clubs internationally work, Andrew? How do, you, how do you sort of help share your best practice and your learnings with others? And how do you sort of see what others are doing um, across the world? Well, there's a there's a, a network of clubs in the South Florida area that I think they're the, the epicenter of where a lot of this happens. And that's where some of the concepts and things that, that we do, uh, we actually learned about. Uh, for instance, we're using biochar and, and uh, biochar is becoming a new uh, uh, term that some people are getting familiar with, but uh, we were one of the first to bring it to Asia. We started using it on the on our facility. And, and what biochar is, is it's basically an ash material. And, and as we started using it as a fertility product, it started allowing us to, to remove our inputs by as much as 50%. And so, so the epicenter of where a lot of these concepts and ideas really are, are developing in that South Florida arena, as well as I think we're also pushing that envelope from here and, and running elbows and elbows with them. I, I believe you've got a bee colony at the club. <laughs> we have we have multiple bee colonies. So uh, bees. And everybody asks me the same question. And most, most people don't realize that bee population worldwide is down 70%. Yeah. Science says when, when the bees go, it could be the beginning of the end because bees pollinate 30% of the food we consume as a human race. And so, I mean, everybody asks me, why bees? And, and then when I tell them that story, the, their eyes kind of open with, oh, I didn't realize it was, there was such a problem. Well, we have a lot of odd corners of our property that we can't use for golf. They're, they're under heavy landscaping or, or a variety of different types of vegetation. And so we're starting to use those spaces to develop bee colonies. And my goal is, is to grow our bee colonies to 40 within the next 12 months. Right now we have nearly 10. Five of the five, six, it goes up and down is our stingless bee colony. And believe it or not, there's 56 different species of bees in Singapore. That, that was something that, that blew my mind when I first started to, to, to look into this. I had no idea there were so many different species of bees. And the, and the stingless bees are one of the most endangered. They're very small and, and they're very sensitive to environmental change. So when we go through weeks like this week, when it's kind of monsoonal with a lot of rain, it, it's really hard on them. But we've built a, a really cool little protective corner. We have it identified as the bee sanctuary and, 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 and they're doing quite well in there. And then on the other corner of our property, we have some native Singapore honeybees. And that is grown to four colonies and, and they produce quite good honey. And we're gonna start using that in our culinary dishes at the club. And so you can start, you can start enjoying things with the honey that we produced on property. But bees are really important to our society. They're really important to world health. And, and if we all don't do our part to, to, to help the bees, it, it could really be a big problem. That's really, really interesting. 
like the British Chamber of Commerce, you know, we're a, we're a club, we're a, we're a business club effectively here. You're a club with your members who play golf. Um, how much of your members are behind all of your sustainability strategies? Are they sort of, are they driving it with you? Are they, are they engaged? Is, is it hard to communicate and take them on that journey? Or is it just sort of naturally there where we're all working to sort of together for a, a more sustainable world? Yeah, you know, we've, we've been at this for, for so long and, and it's been little at a time, little at a time each year that, that they've, they've become quite used to the programs that we've developed. And I, and I think when you look at the landscape of golf in general, that is the case at the majority of golf clubs. They're, they're, they've become very technical. Golf course mm-hmm. superintendents now have college degrees. They're, they're very, there's a lot of science involved in this now. It's, it's no longer a job where, you know, you, you, you take the head janitor and he becomes in charge of golf. It's, it's, it's a very different business approach these days. And so our members are very used to this. And, and they, I think they're actually quite proud of the recognition and the awards that we've been able to achieve. But there have been bumps in the road. I, you know, when we removed plastic water bottles about three years ago, uh, there, was a, there was a moment where it, I, I was quite concerned that it, it could go quite sideways. But also at the same time, I had no idea how popular that was going to become. I mean, we were one of the first to actually push that out. And, and, and when we removed plastic water bottles, we also started recognizing all the single-use plastics that were in, in our business. And, yeah. and so... Once we recognized that and started removing them, I mean, we've removed all single-use plastics. We've removed plastic water bottles. We, we give you a bottle or you can bring your own. We have drinking stations around the golf course where you can fill up your own water bottle. And, and, and now that we've done this, we see it happening all over the community. And, and I think it's pretty special. And our, 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 our members are pretty proud of it. Have you got any advice for sort of smaller businesses that are looking to tackle the climate challenge in terms of through your experience, have you got sort of a top two or three tips for, for, for those that are really thinking about how they can make their businesses more sustainable? Yeah, that's a great question because I get asked that quite often these days. And, and my first response is take the time to measure your carbon footprint. There's no way to start evaluating how you can make improvements until you take that time to measure your carbon footprint. And it's, it's not quite so simple. I mean, there's a, there's a process involved. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of reporting that, that it takes to gather all that data, but, but it's something I wish we started six years ago because you could really see a, a larger progression that we would have made rather than two years ago. And, and if, you, if you measure your carbon footprint today, then it makes it easy to start making a punch list of how can I improve? What are the little things I can do that actually make a difference? So when you look at a, a business like ours or the island of Sentosa, if, if we don't measure our carbon footprint as a, as a, as a precinct, how can, how can we make an impact and show the, the community what a difference we can make? It's so easy to see that the littlest things make a difference. You know, so, so yeah, measuring your carbon footprint, I think is the key to this. And then, you know, we're, we're building things that we're going to start putting on our, uh, on our website soon that we call them uh, toolkits. So other clubs or businesses can go on and download the toolkit and it has little, little punch list ideas and you can, you can look at it and say, Hey, well, that's something I could do and off our toolkit and, and apply it to your business. And so hopefully those things answer the question and help. Oh, super. Thank you so much.
before I sort of uh, talk to Nikki, I mean, absolutely amazing and deser deserved of our uh, our Sustainability Champion of the Year Award through all of those initiatives you've you've been working on. Really, really impressive to hear and to sort of talk about some of those. So, so what's what's the future hold? You talked about the the, the forty colonies of bees. What else have you got sort of on your roadmap at the Sentosa Golf Club? Well, there's a there's a lot of things in the future. I mean, one of our one of our quests to become carbon neutral is a is a is a big issue. We're we're doing some studies and some mathematics to see what our carbon sequestration factor is for the property we sit on, and 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 that's quite complicated. But uh, I'm also really happy to say that we have we have new relationships and new partnerships. I mean, for instance, Adidas and and us have come together and formed a five year partnership. And you think, why would that be special? Well, Adidas now gives all of our staff uniforms that are made out of ocean plastics, recycled ocean plastics. So all of our team is wearing a recycled shirt or pants or shoes. And, and Adidas is doing this pro bono for, for, for the fact that they would like to be associated with things that have the right kind of movements. And, and we quite like having Adidas with us for the same reasons. So there are a lot of positives I see coming in the future, but uh, uh, the, the most important thing is that we all continue to do our part and, and we continue to develop the culture like the culture I think we've developed in our workplace where everybody's taken ownership of this and, and, and it's not just at work, I see them taking it home too. So it's, it's happening in both places. Oh, that's really, really great to hear. Andrew, thank you so, so much for sharing. And, and absolutely, congratulations on, on winning the award as well. It's um, It's been fabulous to talk to you, just to hear a bit more and actually to share some of your stories as well across uh, across our wider network. It's been fabulous. Thank you so much. Nikki, um, Nikki Hewitt, well done for being announced the winner of the Individual Contribution of the Year Award. It's uh, It's great to have you with us as well. And firstly, a huge thank you for all that you do with the Chamber because you supported us incredibly on our Sustainability Business Committee and been instrumental in helping the Chamber to drive our Road to Net Zero hub. And for listeners that might not be familiar with this, this is a platform for businesses to have access to lots and lots of tools to help them to become more sustainable. So thank you so much for your commitment over, over the years with, and your involvement with the committee. Can you just share a little bit about the work that you do at the British High Commission and, and, and why you're so passionate about it? Yeah, definitely. And I just want to say thank you so much again. <laughs> I was so surprised. I echo what Andrew said earlier. Um, I was also <laughs> super surprised and, and grateful to be receiving this award. So, so thank you. So I find it super hard to describe what I actually do at the High Commission. I think it's very broad and diverse, but I think the easiest way to kind of describe it is to kind of group it under a couple of pillars. So I would say the first one is acting as a mouthpiece for the UK. So our approach to sustainability, our, our policies, our direction of travel, you know, why taking action on areas like climate change is so important, but also lots of other areas that come under the sustainability kind of uh, portfolio. So biodiversity loss, you know, combating the illegal wildlife trade, promoting the circular economy. So it involves persuading others to be as ambitious as possible and identifying the sorts of levers to do that. The second I would say is collaboration and partnerships, so establishing platforms to bring the UK and Singapore closer together to drive mutual benefits, so that takes so many forms, you know, events, roundtables, dialogues, MOUs, pilot projects, research projects, so many. Um, and then the third, I would say, is, you know, reporting and analysis. So what's happening in the market, reporting that 
back to teens in uh, in the UK. So um, recommending courses of action. So I dock in with our Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Department for Environment and Rural Affairs, uh, Treasury, lots of different UK departments. To your second part, why am I passionate about it? I think you might expect me to say it's about saving the world. Uh, whilst that's you know definitely true, I, I wouldn't say that it started out that way or it was the central reason. It's actually a field that I fell into. So I never studied international relations or environmental science. I did a business major with a focus on China. Um, and I actually started working at the High Commission in the Department of International Trade, ironically right. covering the oil and gas sector. So uh, my interest actually emerged over time from energy and propulsion, I would say. And I, really, the main reason is that I see this as a booming field. It's, it's so fast paced. It's really exciting. You know, I've seen the commercial and business growth over the last 10 years at the High Commission. And I, I was listening to a podcast recently and Al Gore was speaking and he said, the green revolution is bigger than the industrial revolution and happening at a faster pace than the digital revolution. So I think that explains the size and scale really, really well. And I think now we've, you know, we've had COP26, we've seen many countries and companies that have set net zero dates, including Sentosa Golf Club. And I think the demand on sustainability skills in the workplace is really ramping up. So, you know, on reporting, on supply chain operations, for example. So it's the field that you want to be learning about as much as you can right now. And I think the last reason and this is harder to articulate, but so for me, sustainability, it taps into, you know, an emotional connection for people. For, for me, I remember, you know, uh, memories with my dad traveling the UK, going bird watching. My dad's a twitcher. He loves bird watching. He used to travel up to Wales to try and find the dipper was this bird. I remember him on one occasion. Um, so I think people's people have their emotions, their memories are connected and intertwined with landscapes and nature. And I feel like I, my job, you know, I want to protect and preserve those connections, places and memories. So that's that's how it personally connects with me. Oh, that fabulous. your question. <laughs> oh, it, it absolutely does. Yeah. And what a, what, a, what a great journey as well. That's, that's absolutely incredible. And we're talking to you at absolutely the right time, Nikki, aren't we? Because it's you know, we're just sort of coming out of the end of COP26 in, in Glasgow. And I think a lot of people have been watching really closely what's been happening internationally, what the commitments are going to be. I know there's been lots of discussion around Article 6 as well, which sort of unlocks quite a lot in terms of like carbon trading piece as well. So following that, what do you sort of expect will happen sort of post COP26? What, where do you see sort of the countries and industries develop? Well, I think everyone working in this field has been closely, closely watching every development that's come out over the last two weeks. COP26 has only just concluded. I mean, it's been a key moment in time for this for the world to come together and keep 1.5 degrees warming scenario alive. This was the UK's big goal at COP26. And the Glasgow Climate Pact, uh, which is the text that came out of the meeting and combined with the package of other initiatives, has done that it's kept 1.5 degrees alive it's given us a roadmap although we know 
it's only achievable if the pledges are put fully into action and with immediate effect. So there's a, a real urgency. For me, I do think it's you know a point in time that's going to be written about in the history books. It's been two years of intense diplomacy for the UK. And you know, there's some big headlines. We've seen that now at least 90% of the global economy is covered by net zero commitments, up from 30% when the UK took on the presidency. And in Southeast Asia, 75% of GDP is now committed to net zero by mid-century, which is great. And we've seen some really big movements on phasing out coal and on protecting nature. So the pact um, has specific language on phasing down coal, which we've never seen previously. Um, and all major coal financing countries have now committed to end international coal finance by the end of the year. And um, some listeners may have seen that Singapore signed up to the Powering Past Coal Alliance, which also commits them to that, which is fantastic. And on nature, leaders representing 90% of the world's forests have committed to halting and reversing deforestation by 2030, which is also massive. And we've also seen a plethora of funding commitments as well to support the transition, which is great because it's solely needed, particularly in adaptation, where overall commitment will double by 2025. But arguably, the most important thing that has happened is that we've concluded the outstanding issues of the Paris rulebook, which were carried over from previous COPs. And that's because they're particularly tricky. So you mentioned Article 6, carbon markets. We also have common timeframes and enhanced transparency. And of course, Minister Fu, um, Singapore's environment, environment minister, was integral at helping and facilitating that progressive conversation on Article 6 ahead of COP26 at Glasgow to help get to this moment and to get to, a, to, to agreement on that. What does that mean? It now means that the world can move to the implementation of the Paris Agreement. So no more delays in terms of reporting, countries know how to report properly, how to account, how to track progress against their commitments, and they can collaborate to achieve their NDCs by using the carbon market. So um, now to the tricky part of your question, what to expect moving forward? Mm. I cannot predict the future, <laughs> um, David, but what's important here is that the world needs to be serious about action this decade to deliver 1.5 because the next less than 10 years are critical to to do that so that's why as part of the text countries are asked to return next year with a more ambitious 2030 emissions reduction target and as cop26 president you know the uk is going to work with other countries that need our support to get there. And a good example is the new 110 million ASEAN catalytic green finance facility that was launched at COP26. And it's going to be managed by the ADB. And that's part of our plan to mobilise public financing infrastructure in this part of the world for green recovery um, by helping de-risk it. My last point here is I also think that the transformation of private finance is going to be a game changer it's really going to accelerate things you know it's been under the watchful eye of mark carney at cop 26 climate change is really embedding itself into private sector financial decision making and cop 26 has as i said shifted that up a few gears and a good example is the glasgow alliance for net zero or gfans it's a cop 26 initiative 
but it covers 450 financial firms across 45 countries responsible for over $130 trillion worth of assets. So in Singapore, SGX and DBS Bank are members. And through this, we'll see more consistency in net zero targets and a huge boost of climate related data and information in the market, which is really needed. It should get easier to invest more sustainably. Hope that answers your question. Oh, it really, it, re- it really does. It really, it really does. I'm going to ask a really silly question as well, because there were so many initiatives that came out of COP26. And I'm thinking yes. sort of was the Clyde Bank green shipping lanes. There was... Uh, there was lots, lots of new missions and innovation missions that were were, were launched. I mean, do you, when you keep an eye on these, do you does it surprise you sometimes when some countries are involved and some others aren't? I mean, that's a very difficult question. I mean, of course we track, and uh, you know, I suppose part of the work we do is about introducing these initiatives ahead of Glasgow. Um, introducing them to our host governments, discussing the details. I mean, there's a big process that goes goes into this and I think I think the region has done well in terms of you know those high level ambitions those high level commitments we've seen seen net zero commitments from nearly every country in the region which is fantastic Um, and the important point here is that we need to support those especially the developing economies in the region to to get there So because I focus on Singapore, I'm the climate and energy attaché for this market. Um, I've been keenly watching all of the announcements that Singapore has made at COP26. And I think the biggest one, one of the biggest ones that I've taken note of is the uh, Powering Past Coal Alliance. So um, Singapore was the first Asian country to sign up to the PPCA. And what it actually means is that Singapore government will not finance coal internationally, and also that domestically it will phase out its existing coal plant. It has a cogen plant right now, and also it commits to introducing, you know, no coal in the future into that energy mix. This is really significant because Singapore is not a massive user of coal. It, it, it's mostly natural gas, but it sets a really strong signal, signal in the region. And especially because Singapore is this channel of investment and finance into the region and it's a financial hub. Um, so it really plays to, to signaling you know, the end of coal um, in the region and the end of coal financing. Oh, wow. It sounds like you've worked absolutely tirelessly over the past number of years to help really strengthen that link between the UK and Singapore from a, from a, a climate change perspective. But what, what, what about from a business perspective? I mean, we've heard from Sentosa Gold Club and the strides that they've been making and, and their sort of roadmap in the future to carbon neutral as well. Do you think businesses are starting to change their priorities? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we need to recognise that, you know, all parts of society including the private sector, have been operating in a world where carbon has not been priced. You know, we've polluted, we've degraded the environment and at no cost to the bottom line and without financial repercussions. And it's the biggest market failure of all time that is now being corrected. So I think now COP26 has concluded, we'll really start to see carbon pricing ramp up. And I think businesses are really waking up to the risks, but also the the big opportunities as well. I mean, on risks, you know, there are, Andrew will know, there are physical and financial considerations, right? So Singapore has already stated that it will be increasing its carbon tax next year as part of an accelerated decarbonisation um, effort. And companies in ASEAN probably 
I'm, I'm sure, are keenly watching developments globally on things like carbon border taxes, which will have big financial implications on exporting firms. And businesses need to get to grips quickly with climate change, um, particularly in their supply chains, and to make sure these are, fit, are efficient. I guess on physical risk, well, how much rain did we observe last week in Singapore in such a short space of time? I mean, offices were flooded. You know, what about your assets that are located on a low-lying, you know, low-lying coast? There are real risks that affect your insurability. And I, I hear CDL talk often about how companies need to have a sustainability strategy in place to attract and maintain investment. And that's another key consideration for business. And I suppose the risk side can feel a bit stressful. But there is a massive opportunity side as well. And, you know, in this part of the world, from what I observe, I would say that the opportunities get less headspace over the risks. Um, But actually, we're seeing that slowly change. And I guess a very general comment on opportunities. I think the basic principle that you learn in in business school is that companies need to evolve to stay relevant. Um, Those that move now will really reap the rewards of green growth. And I bet you that the biggest companies, you know, in the next decade will be the ones that have a deeply embedded sustainability agenda, because as humanity evolves, society's requirement of business is changing and businesses have to be more than simply just money making machines. And I guess the beauty of sustainability is that you can make money and do good for people and the planet, you know, and Andy gave us a, a really nice story and with with his example so yeah I, I think it's really 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 uh really a, a priority for business now it should be no it's really good to hear and we're, we're, we're fully behind you as well here at the chamber so um doing as much as we possibly can to provide all those toolkits available you've talked about your government relations activity your role you've talked about business and i'm really keen to draw something out of you because i know that you've been doing a lot with the younger demographic as well haven't you and mentorships and trying to inspire the next generation in terms of all of the great work you've been doing can you just share some, some of some of the work you've been doing to support youth and getting them to start thinking about sustainability and sort of supporting that demographic yeah sure I think when people talk about youth you know they immediately go to Greta Thunberg and you know she is an icon of our time and she's really harnessed the voice of the people towards greater climate action I guess but rather than focusing on Greta I would really like to draw people's attention to the local youth leaders here in Singapore who actually deserve a lot more attention, in my opinion, um, and who have, you know, who I've had the pleasure of getting to know this year. And a big shout out to Singapore Youth for Climate Action, Cheryl and Swati, who were at COP26 in person this year, running um, a number of engagements. To be very honest, I'm still early on in my youth engagement journey. It's only something that I recently kicked off this year under our presidency in Singapore. And that's part of, you know, making sure that the UK's COP26 presidency is inclusive as possible, um, hearing from all different parts of society across the world. A fun fact here is that the National Youth Council's youth age bracket is quite generous. So I myself class as a climate youth leader but I'm still holding on by a teeny tiny thread. Um, teeny tiny thread. Uh, we 
we ran the COP26 Youth Climate Dialogue last uh, last March to engage young Singaporeans with our presidency. And there's probably three takeaways I'd like to share from that. I guess the first is expertise. So these young people are really are experts in their fields. They have really detailed knowledge and many actually know more about climate change and the UN process than I do, but many don't see themselves as leaders. So we have to help rejig this thinking as these are individuals that are going to be the change agents within businesses, government and society. And second is that youth really want to be part of the climate conversation here in Singapore. So it's so fantastic that the 2030 Green Plan has a great emphasis on cross societal dialogues to shape the evolving policy. And they have some great ideas. And I recommend to anyone listening or any business listening, if you haven't reached out, youth leaders here, you you definitely should. And third is that we must actively help connect smaller local community initiatives to the bigger picture. And I think this helps take us towards building the global mindset of combating climate change together, because it's really going to take a huge joined up, coordinated global effort to deliver. So they would be my three takeaways. Oh, fabulous. You've driven an incredible number of dialogues and partnerships to advance SGUK relations, particularly with the Green Agenda in mind, including establishing the annual UK-Singapore Climate Change Bilateral Dialogue in 2020. Wow, very impressive. What has been your proudest career moment to date? <laughs> this is such a difficult question. I I don't have one. I, don't, I can't pinpoint one moment. I, I feel... The climate change bilateral dialogue sounds probably sounds very boring to a lot of listeners, but it's exciting because it allows there's a lot that the UK and Singapore do on climate change and sustainability um, across all the different sectors, um, you know, business, government to government, you know, between our universities, um, between our young people. But what this platform does is it helps us structure those collaborations in in the best way possible and it allows us to go into more granular detail of what identifying what those mutual areas of cooperation and partnership could be for the future so it allows us to build out those work streams in in a better way so that's why that's good so of, of course that is an achievement but I think probably the the thing I would say is delivering a very complex kind of COP26 engagement plan across various parts of society here uh, with a backdrop of COVID <laughs> where you can't meet people. And, uh, you know, a part of that is means you have to shift plans very quickly, working, you have to work with new partners to amplify reach, you have to speak to new audiences and doing all of that remotely is, is, is really challenging. So, yeah, I, I kind of see that this whole two years as the achievement. <laughs> And then hearing, obviously, all of the commitments that Singapore has signed up to at COP26 has been is, has been really fantastic. Oh, no, good. Great, great, great answer. And really great to hear about all of your activities and really great to hear from Andrew as well around how a business is actually implementing it. This has been a really, really interesting session. And I think the timing has been absolutely perfect. Andrew, if I can bring you back into the conversation with Nikki, just for some sort of final questions, it'd be great to sort of find out. How did it feel to win the award? Can you can you share some of your uh, what, what your thoughts and feelings were when you were when you were announced the winners of both of your awards? Andrew, perhaps you can go first. Yeah, certainly. You know, it was uh, it was a big year for the club. 
this is the second year in a row we've been we've been announced as the world's most eco-friendly golf course. Uh, uh, the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, which has 80,000 members, I believe, wow. we were named second runner-up in the sustainability area. But when we heard we won the award here tonight against, it was one thing to lead in our industry, right? In, in the golf industry and be one of those leaders. And, and we've been in those shoes for years. So we're, we're used to that kind of recognition, but it's different when you're competing against everybody in the community. And when we were successful that night, I, I can tell you, I was so, I was so happy. I was so impressed. I, and when I looked at the other videos that were up, I thought, no way, no way will it be the golf club. But when it, when it was, it was really a special moment. And, you know, we would, we're so thankful for the opportunity and, and to your organization and the chamber. Thank you. Oh, super. Thanks, Andrew. How, how about you, Nikki? How does it feel? Well, I think most people saw who watched the awards saw my reaction. Uh, I was completely shocked. I did not expect to win that award. And I was just so chuffed. I was just so, so, so chuffed. And I think I said at the time, you know, when I was describing what I do in my role earlier, I think it's, 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 it's difficult for people to understand. It's not really, uh, you know, the, the attache for a market, you know, working for the High Commission, you know, it's not normally at the forefront you know, an annual business awards, a Bridgetown annual business awards. So I was just really chuffed, really, to be to be recognised. But obviously, you know, the last two years has, has been a hell of a lot of work and, you know, a lot of personal time and investment, uh, you know, blood, sweat and tears into that. And I just think this was kind of, you know, like a really nice thank you for that. And I just... I was just so chuffed and delighted at receiving it. Oh, no, super. It's great, great reactions. And I guess a final question is, why, why, why should people enter the awards next year? And hopefully they'll be in person. It encourages you to continue, you know, pushing forward and doing more. So sometimes I think you might not be recognised for your efforts, but, you know, being part of this process has, you know, shed light on what I do, you know, regardless of if I won or not, you know, I still would have felt that. So, you know, I think it just gives people a, a real insight into all your effort on a daily basis. So I find that really valuable and really rewarding. Oh, super. And Andrew, how about yourself? You know, I, I, I agree with uh, the response there. I mean, rewarding is something that just you, you can't replace. But I also, I also hope that, you know, by, by, being a part of this also shows the healthy competitiveness in all of us as business and gets more people, more people on the table at the plate, ready to put in their, their ideas and their concepts to try and uh, to try and achieve success in this space. And, you know, when I look at, when I look at the community of Singapore and the golf courses in Singapore, it's no longer Sentosa golf club leading. Everybody's trying to find ways to fit in the same space and, that's the important piece here is that we're all moving towards the, the real problem. And once again, Andrew, Nikki, many congratulations on, on both of your awards. It has been truly fantastic to talk with you today and to share your successes and your stories and, and some background against what allowed you to go and win them as well. It's been really great to have the conversation today. So thank you for joining us. And I really hope we can see you soon. And the same goes for our podcast listeners. Take care. Oh, 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 oh,
Thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, don't forget to subscribe and rate our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google and all other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit www.britchan.org.sg.